welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lucas Walrich, and in this podcast, I'm interviewing educators, researchers, innovators, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to shape education to make the world a better place, one way or the other. episode, we're speaking to Chris Edwards, the head of Green School Taranaki in New Zealand. They started their school just earlier this year. They're really bringing some of the big ideas around outdoor education, around interdisciplinary learning and around building a true learning community to life. The ideas that Chris shared really inspired me. Okay, so yeah, I'd like to start by just learning a bit more about Green School uh, New Zealand and maybe possibly by starting in Bali, because that's the school that's been operating for a bit more than a decade. So maybe could you give me a bit of a flavor of what that school is like? Sure. So I, th I think the first thing to say is that Green School New Zealand owes an immense amount to Green School Bali. And if there had been no Green School Bali, there would be no Green School New Zealand. So that's an umbrella over everything that follows. Without Bali, the Green School movement wouldn't exist. Um, when I agreed to come to New Zealand, um, I was sent off to Bali for a month, this um, halcyon pre-lockdown world, to uh, effectively immerse myself in Green School Bali. So I learned quite a lot. I was there for four weeks on campus every day. Um, Green School Bali has, as you say, Lucas, existed for over a decade now, and it's the brainchild and maybe I should say the heart child of John and Cynthia Hardy. Um, you can find them on YouTube. If you don't know about them, you can read about John and Cynthia But essentially, there was an epiphany. Um, John decided that um, the way forward was the Green School way. And there was in Bali constructed this extraordinary bamboo campus. You, you can literally hold the whole campus in the palm of your hand as seeds. Um, I, th I think that's a literally true statement. You can have enough seeds in one hand to grow all of Bali. Um, and the school grew to a population of around 500. It ran a curriculum that was not original in all its parts because an awful lot of work was done, magpie-like work, if you like, collecting the best parts of curricula from around the world and merging it with some original ideas into the Green School Bali curriculum. Um, but the totality was unique. And of course, the environment was unique. And I think the approach, the nature-based approach, is something I'd never seen before to that extent. You know, I'd seen schools which did operate nature-based learning in places, but Bali was a beautiful immersion. Um, And I was, in the vernacular, absolutely blown away by the whole thing. They'd reached a stage where they were taking no external examinations. There were no GCSEs or IBs or A-levels, etc. They had a green school diploma, recognized by universities in America especially. Um, and I saw young people, and look, it wasn't perfect every day. I'm, I'm, I'm painting a picture of an idyll here, but for four weeks for me it was an idyll, that's for sure. But I saw young people happy. I saw them focused. I saw them self-directed. I saw efficacy. And I saw, for the most part, the kind of learning that I would like to see across all schools in the world today. So I found it inspirational. Okay. And then you got involved with building something something similar, something inspired by it in, in New Zealand. What were some of the key things you wanted to take into the project in New Zealand? Um, sure. So if, if I could just take one step back in answering that question, because the next people you need to know about are, are Michael and Rachel Perrett. They were parents at Bali. They're from Taranaki, New Zealand, and their three children went to Green School Bali for a period. So revelatory was the experience, so transformational, certainly for one of their children, for William, um, that the parents decided that they 
would open the second green school in the family back home in Taranaki, New Zealand. So that's another very important thing, that the barley DNA was already in the Perrits when they came to New Zealand. So it was their idea to open in New Zealand. And um, I had very different intentions for my life. I was about to go back to the UK from Singapore, having run this Titanic school. And they invited me over to Bali. Um, I met them. I'm still not quite sure what happened that evening, but um, maybe I drank too much sake at the Japanese restaurant. But by the next morning, I'd, I'd effectively signed up. And, and all I wanted to do was to come to New Zealand and get the second green school off to the best possible start. So in terms of what we've taken from Bali, that's a huge question. I'm going to try and keep it very brief. Um, and, and by all means, ask, ask me for more detail if I'm too brief. But we tried to distill the Bali curriculum, take the, the quintessence of it, if you like. And then we tried very hard to contextualize it for New Zealand. And, and by we, we had four people. We had the former head of Bali, Leslie Medema, who's now head of um, learning at Green School International. We had two people who'd actually advised the New Zealand government on education. And we had um, the weakest of the four, myself, sat there devising a curriculum that was super relevant to New Zealand. And what we always thought was it has to be local to global, rooted in where you are, rooted, for example, in New Zealand, using lots of ideas from the indigenous Maori culture, but make sure that the concepts are transferable, always transferable globally. And um, that's what we've come up with. So you can certainly recognize Bali. We have exactly the same set of values. They're called the I respect values. We have exactly the same set of skills. Um, they are lifted straight from Bali, unadulterated. But after that, there is that New Zealand contextualization to all we do. But you'd, you'd recognize Bali if you visited uh, Green School New Zealand. I think that that's actually a crucial point, this idea of, of localizing, contextualizing these, these global concepts. Can you maybe think of a specific example where one of the green ideas is expressed differently in Bali and in, in New Zealand? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a few examples. I mean, I mean, a very obvious one would just be um, the, the learning of language. So, for example, every young learner who comes to Green School New Zealand will learn, um, while they are here, Te Reo Māori, the language of the indigenous people. Um, that's just a you know, blindingly obvious example. But we do want people to understand um, that in so many places across this planet, there are indigenous peoples whose stories for the most part, have not been heard. I know the recalibration is taking place now, but how wonderful if you could actually listen to and tell some of those stories in, in the language of the indigenous people. So you know, one very obvious example. Um, let's take an idea like Jalan Jalan in Bali. Now, Jalan Jalan, as I understand it, is about going out, passionately engaging with something in Bali that is not fixed on the curriculum. And here we have an equivalent called the hikoi, and the hikoi is another Maori word, another indigenous word, And that's to do with striding out, marching. We are surrounded by the most beautiful flora and fauna imaginable. You know, we have the ocean on one side and we have a snow-capped volcano on the other. So although we've taken the idea from Bali about going out, our going out is based almost entirely in the natural world around us because it is so abundant. It, it is so rich. Um, so we tip our hat to Bali and say, thank you for enabling us to put that into our curriculum. But those lessons would look very, I, I use the word lessons advisedly. It's not a word I use in school, but I will use it for this podcast. Those lessons are very different. As I said, you'd recognize an essential quality, but in detail, entirely New Zealand. Okay, actually, you, you already triggered my next question when you were saying you wouldn't use the words the word lessons in school. So what, what does the school day and what does your approach to learning look like? 
Yeah, it's, I, I have to say, Lucas, it's, it's quite difficult for me. When I do podcasts and interviews, of course, we, we have developed our own vocabulary, but it's not necessarily understood by other people, of course. So I, I revert to old vocabulary, um, and I find myself walking the tightrope sometimes. So if we talk in terms of lessons and a timetable, although, again, we, we wouldn't describe it like that, there is a timetable. Um, there is structure to the week, and you can write it down on a piece of paper. So, you know, we don't spend the day hugging trees, wearing bandanas, and singing Kumbaya. The curriculum is essentially split into four sections. Um, section one is called The Voyage, and a voyage is a thematic learning journey spread over 10 weeks, because a New Zealand term is 10 weeks. There are four terms in a year. The Voyage will have a provocative title. So, for example, this term right now, the title for the voyage is From the Seat of My Soul, I Sing. The whole school will embark on that voyage for 10 weeks. And for certainly four days a week, you'll be um, having a lesson, in inverted commas, in, in that voyage topic. The lesson in the voyage will be age appropriate. And that's another loaded term because people aren't lockstep. You know, every nine-year-old isn't the same. So again, I'm using terminology that I think people understand, but it's not terminology I'd use necessarily in school. So... Let's take the top end of the school in terms of age. So year 11, which is our top year at the moment, um, they might be exploring concepts of soul. You know, where did the word soul come from? Oh, well, it's an Anglo-Saxon word and a high German word and a Dutch word, etc. And what's the history of the concept of soul through different cultures, especially Maori culture? But you could go to Vedic culture, Greek culture, whatever it might be. And what about hidden qualities in human beings and indeed hidden qualities in the earth um, from the seat of my soul? Is that just a nebulous phrase or is there something more concrete in certain cultures there? And so on. And if you're six years old, you'll be approaching that very, very differently, but you will all be approaching it together. And from those lessons, most of what we would describe as the discrete subjects, the discrete disciplines, most of them fall out of that. So your physics, your chemistry, you might be doing experiments down by the river, that which we cannot see. You might be testing the purity of the water, that which we cannot see in nature, but it's so important. So that's the voyage, and that's an exciting 10-week project or journey for the whole school. More prosaically, the second element um, are the discrete subjects. We call them the proficiencies. There are three, English, maths, and Tereo Māori. Um, we did, I'll be quite frank, we, we toyed with the idea of seeing if we could fold English and maths into the voyages as well. And of course, we do to an extent. But actually, we came to the conclusion that even at Green School, no, you, you need those proficiencies. So, you know, I'm often asked, but you do do maths, don't you? Yes, of course, we do maths. And if, if you're a good mathematician, you leave the school, you can do calculus and you can go to MIT if you so wish. So that's there. And every day you will have a proficiency lesson. And then the other two elements are, I've mentioned one of them already, the hikoi, the journeying out, the getting away from the classroom, um, and then the passion projects as well. We give people time every week to engage in a passion project of their choosing. And look, you might want to be a nature photographer, you might want to be a designer of ethically sourced clothing or whatever. We'll hook you up with people who can help you, people with whom you can work, that might be in the local area. So they're the four components. Um, they are timetabled. If you come to Green School, it feels much more fluid than that because so much is taking place outside. You won't necessarily know at first sight, oh my goodness me, you know, that this is actually a Maori lesson because it's taking place outside. You've just been instructed to go and fetch four different kinds of plants, seeds, whatever it might be in Maori. And you might see an awful lot of young people outdoors doing things and not recognize it as a proficiency lesson. Um, but is it structured? Yeah, absolutely it is. 
yeah, very, very interesting components that probably like to, to explore in turn. And um, so the voyages, how do you even approach planning that? Because you have all the, the different disciplines that you somehow want to, to touch upon. You have all the different age groups. How does it come yeah. about? So I think the first thing to say in answer to that, Lucas, is we're very lucky that we're in New Zealand because, um, look, I, I'm not a world expert on this by any means. So th this is um, this is the view of a very interested layman when it comes to world curricula. But I have never seen a developed country with a curriculum as progressive and as permissive as New Zealand. You know, some things which run to 100 pages in other countries' curricula run to a single page in New Zealand. They give educators so much choice and flexibility. So that's an important point because when we planned the voyages, we put the New Zealand curriculum next to us and we mapped our voyages against the standards required by the New Zealand curriculum. So again, the young learners won't necessarily know this is happening on a week-by-week -week basis, but in fact, we say, okay, in this voyage, we're going to hit this particular standard in physics or in drama or in expressive dance, whatever it might be, um, and in the following voyage, we'll, we'll hit the following standards, and th that might be in literature or whatever. So the teachers in old school language, the teachers have a framework. They know where they are in relation to the New Zealand curriculum, but the way we go about delivering those standards is, is entirely down to us. And because we're a nature-based school, we can do so much of this um, outdoors in the kind of environments where you wouldn't normally be studying, for example, physics. So are you following the New Zealand curriculum throughout all years? Um, I, so I, I wouldn't use the word following, although at one point we do. Um, we are aware of the New Zealand curriculum and we're making sure that we're hitting relevant standards um, where we have to become at the moment narrower is in the final two to three years of the school. Now, New Zealand goes up to year 13. We are, at the moment, we only have a year 11. We're only a few weeks old as a school, of course. Um, and for entry to New Zealand universities, you do need something called the NCEA. Um, I won't go into details now, but effectively, you are taking a course prescribed um, at the top end of the school by the New Zealand authorities. Again, there's huge flexibility as to how you can go about this. And a lot of the work is, is a, can be around sustainability and, and um, biosystems, et cetera. Um, but at the moment, we are bound to the NCEA. That might change in future. I actually hope it does change, flexible though New Zealand is. So I think the answer to your question, Lucas, is that we shadow, that might be the best word, we shadow the New Zealand curriculum in our own unique Green School way under the context of the Green School diploma. And then right at the end, for now at least, we do take the NCEA. But again, that NCEA is part of something larger. The larger thing is, is the Green School diploma, and that includes the Green School values, the Green School skills, etc. It's, yeah, I'd like to get, get back to this, uh, this diploma and leaving question a bit later on. Um, I think you said something like so-called teachers or traditionally called teachers. What is the role of teachers in the voyages, both in the planning and then in the, throughout the students' experience? Yeah, I've, we, we may want to talk about this later. I've been on a, a pretty spectacular inner journey when it comes to pedagogy and learning myself. So the things I'm saying now, you would not have heard me say even just a few years ago. But when you're in a place like Green School New Zealand, you really do understand that, that everybody is facilitating the learning of everybody else. And sure, in terms of sheer content, somebody who's 40 and well-read 
is going to know, and again, I put that word in inverted commas, more than a six-year-old got it. But the way we live our lives, our day-to-day reality at Green School New Zealand reminds me more than ever, and, and this too is a Maori concept, you know, they, they even have a word for it themselves, that we are all learning from one another. So of course I'll use the word teachers when, when I'm talking to people outside of Green School, and, and it's not that it's a bad word or a silly word, it's not that. It's just that it doesn't capture the nuance or the lived reality of, of what's happening in a community where everybody really is learning from everyone else, student from student, student from teacher, and teacher from student as well. And we bring in our parents. We might come to that in a minute. Another unique factor of Green School is, is the parental involvement. They're welcome on campus all the time. They even have their own place where they can spend the entire day if they so wish. So it's a community school where the community learns from one another. Yeah, parents back to next on, uh, on my list. So how does that work? How do you build this learning community? Um, so I'm going to start with an unusual place. I'll start with the parents because this is, in my experience, pretty radical. When I went to Bali, as you walk through the main entrance, on the right, there is a wonderful bamboo section of the school, which is called the bridge. It doesn't look like a bridge. Um, so I quickly realized this, this has to be a metaphor. Um, you know, it's a lovely indoor and outdoor space made of bamboo. And it's full of parents. And those parents will sometimes spend the whole day at the bridge buying coffee, cakes, whatever, and it could be running their businesses, whatever, from a computer. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, it hardly matters where in the world you are, and many people in Bali were just that. And then I learned it was called a bridge because it was the link between parents, teachers, students. The parents can spend literally all day on campus at the bridge if they so wish, sampling the atmosphere of the school, working from the school, uh, as I said, buying food and drink within the school itself, so that's another idea we've taken directly from Bali. And as you walk into Green School New Zealand, the first thing you say, see rather, is a repurposed barn. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it's my favorite building on the site because a lot more money has been spent on other buildings, but there's something magical about it. Um, this repurposed barn has the windows from local houses that were due for demolition. The ceiling is made of old coffee bags and, and so on. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And that's where our parents go. And some of them, really do spend the whole day at school working from the bridge. Um, we don't want them in the learning spaces during the day, just to be clear. You know, we don't have parents wandering around what would traditionally be termed classrooms. But if you take it from my perspective, it means that there are so many daily casual interactions. And those casual interactions with parents make such a huge difference. Um, you know, I've run big, big schools before coming to Green School New Zealand. And so often things come to a head when they shouldn't have done because there wasn't sufficient communication beforehand. Having parents as part of the community in that respect, it rids the school of the us and them thing. You know, even parents associations, invariably, at some point in their history, it turns into an us versus them. Um, at Green School, we hope to avoid that. And then the next thing is just using parent expertise whenever possible. Bringing parents in, having parents conducting sessions with the young learners, making parents feel that they belong, that this is their home as well. Um, and I had some wonderful comments during lockdown. I mean, we're lucky in New Zealand, we're coming out of lockdown now, but during lockdown, as I was checking in, what green school parents were saying, and I know we haven't got many, I know we're small, I know it's relatively easy for me to, to do this, but you know, they were just saying, thank you for being so in touch with us. Um, and we really do feel we have a community here. So in summary, I think it's the parents actually that are the key I've been to schools where, again, old language teachers and students have formed a wonderful community, but it's frequently wrecked because they were not communicating sufficiently well with parents, and so there was conflict. And for this small young school, 
that hasn't happened yet, and I very much hope it doesn't happen in the future. Obviously, it is, as you hinted at, a lot easier to build such a community with 50 students than with many more students. Um, what's your ambition there? How big do you envision the school to be in a couple of years? And how are you thinking that might influence the, the dynamic? Okay. Um, okay. I'm laughing because if you'd asked me that question two months ago, I'd have given you a very precise answer. Um, because borders around the world are closed and Green School New Zealand is a destination school, um, you know, we don't have any boarding facilities. We want international parents to move to New Zealand, to live in New Zealand and to experience Green School. So you, you will understand that in present circumstances, we have had to change the business model uh, rather fleet-footedly, as have millions of people around the world with, you know, with their own businesses. So if I could talk long-term, Lucas, the, the aspiration is for the school to top out at just over 500 students. It will never be a huge school. I mean, the campus is huge and beautiful and sublime. Um, you can walk for hours around Green School New Zealand, but we don't want more than 500 students. Um, where will we be next year? Um, I'm going to be very honest. I don't know. It depends how quickly borders around the world open, how quickly New Zealand lets people in again. But we had intended to reach 500 over five years, so very approximately growing by, by 100 a year. It wasn't quite, the plan isn't quite as precise as that. Um, and then how do we make sure we retain this wonderful feel that we have at the moment? I think kindness within the community and empathy within the community is something you can scale up if you have the current pioneer parents as advocates. And more than anything else, that's what I would want. Um, you know, we've already had, we've been sent surveys by various magazines and media outlets from around the world. And, you know, I would just send those straight to parents and say, write what you want. Get, and at the moment, things are so positive because I think there's a sense of trust. Um, there's a sense of openness. And that can be scaled up if the current parents, as I said, are advocating for the school at all times. Um, you know, I'd like to think even those few troublemaker parents who make life so difficult for heads, even in very large schools, it's a tiny, tiny proportion of parents causing the um, the trouble. They want things done their way. Um, I'd like to think they'd be gently converted by the wonderful community we have here right now. Yeah, well, all the best for that. It's interesting to hear how your business plan had to change. Um, and of course, you also will get very committed parents if those parents move to New Zealand to join the community. So it's yeah, yeah, it's beautiful to hear. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, almost getting to the heart, perhaps, of what Green School is about. What we are telling parents here is, look, we, we are, this sounds pompous, but we're actually looking to explore and perhaps redefine for the 21st century what happiness and what success looks like, not just for young people or for graduates or for people in the first 10 years of their working life, but for families and parents as well. And we want to explore that together. And as I said, we're not doing it in some vague, new age, hippie kind of way. There is structure. Most importantly, there is research behind all of this, especially as regards nature-based education. And the invitation to parents is to come and join us if you feel that those concepts, that happiness, that success do need recalibrating. Um, come and join this community. We are of the world. I'm, I'm speaking to you now from the town of New Plymouth. I'm not on campus. I'm actually at home. Um, you know, we... <laughs> We have restaurants, bars, and shops are plenty in this town. We're not stuck out in the middle of nowhere. So there is an element of pragmatism to all this as well. But we feel this is such important work that we know there are people out there. They're here already. People have moved from Japan, from North America, from Europe to come to Green School New Zealand. And we know there are many more out there who'd want to join a community like this. What would be your, your key thoughts on what needs to change about the concepts of happiness and success? Like many people, I've, I've just watched... Um, 
I, I won't speak about it too much in case people haven't seen it yet because it's still relatively new. This very controversial Michael Moore, um, he didn't actually direct it, but um, I think he put it out in his name. And the, the documentary called The Planet of the Humans. Um, so without spoiling it for people, um, it's an examination of green technologies and there is a conclusion that will surprise many people. For me, it's all about consumption um, and we have to get away from the idea of, of growth and replace it with the idea of thriving. So my invitation is that if we find people out there who do not equate growth with thriving, because we believe in thriving, but I do not believe in an ever-growing world economy, come and join us and come and see what thriving looks like and help us to define that. Um, I am appalled when I see, look, I look at the history of what constitutes success in the world now. You know, something like gross domestic product. GDP has become an end in itself. That was never the case. That's, that's not what it was designed for. Um, you know, you could have the biggest GDP in the world and have the most miserable population imaginable. But you look at charts and tables and GDP in and of itself is down, you know, the single most important thing. And oh my Lord, the economy isn't growing. Um, look, a small school in New Zealand can't deal with problems like this all by itself. But communities around the world can unite, they can organize. And for me, that's the essence of it. It's not about growth. It's about thriving. What does thriving look like as we consume less and we grow less? Um, and my goodness me, if we can crack that, then we're certainly to mix my metaphors on the right road. Mm. And I see how, how you can experiment with lots of these concepts in the, in the school community and through, through the voyages and through the passion projects. As I kind of read your materials, Green School is also very much about preparing students to then go out into the world and, and lead some kind of change into that direction. How are you thinking about that, about kind of preparing and developing these change-making abilities? Yeah, I think um, I'm going to um, pick up on an important word you use there, Lucas, if I may, which is leaders. Um, I haven't seen a school now in the last 10 years that doesn't claim to be producing leaders. Everyone's a leader now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, seriously, every, everywhere you look, every school, we're all leaders. We'll lead this. We'll lead that. We'll lead the change making. And a few people will. And in, you know, small aspects of life, everybody is a leader in some capacity or other. Everyone leads somebody else. But I think when we think of the word leaders, you know, we have this idea as this perhaps gifted or inspirational individual and a horde of other people follow them. Well, clearly, I mean, you know, logic makes it very clear. <laughs> that cannot be the case. You cannot all be that person. Otherwise, you'd have nobody following you. Um, I'm very interested in first followers as well. I'm very interested in people who make judicious choices, in people who recognize genius or leadership or inspiration in others and have the courage to follow them. And... The reality, as I see the world anyway, is that there are more people like that than there are true leaders. So although I hope we do produce people who will lead and innovate dramatically and be entrepreneurial, I hope very much that we'll find people who are wise. And if they themselves cannot generate the ideas, they recognize opportunities when they see them. And I think that's a very important part of education that is lacking because people are so wrapped up in this language of leadership now And it's become almost nonsensical, to be honest. So judicious choice, wisdom, carefully weighing up the opportunities and selection, that's crucial as we go forward. And courage. You know, it's like parents who come to green school. It requires courage. These are pioneer parents. They're giving up a lot. They're changing a lot. And it's people like that that we want to invite to Taranaki. Okay, then how do you support students in, in developing that capacity? So then in, in Green School, um, we, we rely on a lot of research here. So, you know, the, the words people be very familiar with now, but, the, but they are backed by research. So 
first of all, nature-based education. It's the reconnection with nature. And we don't use the word sustainability as much as people might think. The word I prefer to use is, is regeneration. So if you said, what is the aim of green school as, as, as um, the young learners move through the school and move out the school? I would say regeneration of self, of community, and of planet. Well, okay, how do you do that then? Well, we have lenses, if you like, that we throw over the curriculum. And we try to to deliver our learning, learning is experienced through these lenses. So for example, one of the lenses is well-being, well-being of self and well-being of others. Um, Another lens would be sustainability itself, but only as something that leads to regeneration. And a third lens would be systems thinking. So let's take the famous example, if if, if I may, Um, it's well known and it's very clear. In a standard economics lesson, you might learn about the the price of gold, and if you sell gold at this rate, and you get this money back at that rate, or whatever, and what you can do on the markets with it, and and you can make a decent economics lesson out of it. Very few economics lessons will mention the fact that to extract the gold, you have to blow a hole in a mountain, you have to move communities, um, you have to produce the minerals, the rare earth substances, whatever it might be, in order to mine the gold. Um, It will not record the suffering and the change that will take place as you get that gold from the ground and so on and so forth. And I think it's crucial at Green School that we look at the interconnectedness of all things, that we teach systems thinking. And again, you know, systems thinking, and and, and again, Lucas, I'm really not an expert on this, so I hope you're not going to ask me something terribly difficult as a follow-up question. But systems thinking is revolutionizing the way I'm, I'm approaching almost everything. Um, and I'm thinking, my goodness me, this is blindingly obvious. Why didn't anybody you know, tell me about this before? So all these methods will be used at Green School to better understand the connectedness of all things, that everything is influenced by everything else. And if you have that understanding, it really ought to change the way you behave and, and approach life subsequently. So when I have tried to use some of these concepts in educational programs I've designed, generally in the shape of of summer courses and summer schools, I quickly find that young people get to a stage where they understand that many things are connected, that systems are are important and really complex, but I've seen that lead to to paralysis more often than to creativity. Have you observed any of that and, and how are you kind of moving beyond this recognition that things are very complicated and interdependent? Yeah, that, that's a challenging question for me to answer, Lucas, because um, I can't actually answer, yes, I have observed that because we're too new. If we speak again in a year's time, I might be able to give you a better answer. One of the problems with running a school that is so new and, you know, we really are only a few weeks old, is that I have no proof of concept in terms of, certainly in terms of outcome. You know, I can't point to any Green School New Zealand graduates. What I can do is point to Bali, and I would encourage anybody listening to this, you know, to go onto the Bali website and have a look at what some of their graduates have achieved and some of the changes they have made. And I'm guessing with Bali, and I'm hoping with Green School New Zealand, because it's intentional here, that whereas with a summer course, and summer courses are great, you know, I don't say this to do down summer courses, and I hope we'll be running some ourselves, but whereas with a summer course you have limited exposure and, you know, temporarily you're, you're very limited indeed, you've only got X weeks to do all of this, we want to embed this in the green school way. If you come here as a six-year-old and you leave here as an 18-year-old or you come here as a 15-year-old, whatever it might be, we want it to be embedded in your lived life at green school. Um, it'll be like breathing, it'll be second nature to you. And I'm afraid the best answer I can give, Lucas, is could you come back next year, ask me again, and I'll see if I can give you some hard examples. But that's the intention. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. 
And I think the the point that you're making that it's about growing up with more of these thoughts is essential. And to, to some extent, it's very difficult to look at, at one or two examples of complexity of systems thinking and then, then expect anyone to overcome the, I know, this, this mind-blowing realization. It's also how, how I experienced uh, getting started in that space. So I might, I might come back with that question. Um, yeah, please do. Please do. Something, <laughs> something much more practical that I, that I thought was very interesting were your plans for milestone experiences, because quite often they seem to be missing in education. So, so what's your thinking behind those? Yeah, so this, this again is a hats off to Bali moment because Bali have these wonderful milestone experiences. Um, and, you know, I look back at my schooling and by the way, I was very happy at school and I, I have a simple, you know, cliched statement about my own schooling. You know, what got me here will not get the next generation there. So I'm very grateful for the education I had. I went to some wonderful schools. However, I do remember the, the regular testing, examining. We had something called half-term orders, my school, where every half-term, so that would be six times a year, the class was ranked in order of ability. And until I was allowed to specialize at the top end of the school, I would hover around sort of 22 to 24 out of a class of 32. And if ever I got into the top 20, um, it was a joyous moment. That was my milestone, getting into the top 20. And the reason for this, I was at an all-boys school. Um, discrete sciences were compulsory, and I wasn't very good at science. I'd, I'd frequently come top for English or music or whatever, but, um, but not the three or four sciences, and that dragged me down. And I look back on it, and I actually think my milestone experiences were, were actually not being in, in the bottom 13 of the class. That's what made me happy until I was about 15, 16, then everything changed. At Green School, it's something generative and proactive and personal and passionate. Now, we, we haven't had any of these projects yet again. I'm, I'm sorry to keep answering like this, Lucas. You know, we're too new, but, but we are. We haven't got to that stage yet. But again, please have a look at some of the projects that the Bali students have undertaken. Look at the presentations that are rather like TED Talks. Um, most famously, and I know this is, is used an awful lot, but it is amazing. Um, two girls at Bali, effectively by themselves, managed to free Bali of all single-use plastic bags. Um, it's remarkable. And they did that because of work done at Green School, because of their own passion, because of the help they received or the facilitation they received um, from their teachers. Um, and I, I look at that and I think, goodness me, for two teenagers to have achieved that is extraordinary. So in answer to your question, I would love to think that in a New Zealand context, we can emulate that level of impact sooner rather than later. I actually wanted to ask you about a statement you made about your own education there, because um, you had a very traditional good education at a prestigious independent school than at Oxford. Why is that not going to get young people there anymore? What has actually changed? Yeah, I, th I think um, th this isn't going to be a sob story, but perhaps just, just one thing I should point out is that um, both my parents came from working class inner city Liverpool, and Neither of them went to university. My dad left school at 14. He actually made the end of the Second World War. He actually, um, he's was, he was in the Royal Navy. And my mum left school at 16. And they vowed that the opportunities they were denied as young people in, in inner city Liverpool would not be denied their children. Um, Irish Catholic family in Liverpool's a very Irish English city. So they had six children and all six children went to university. And while it's absolutely true that the school I went to, which is a great school, Merchant Taylor School, is an independent school, um, in those days, the, the system was rather different than it is now. So 
that was a magnificent education in so many ways. And then, as you said, I went to Oxford and I, I taught in some quite traditional um, independent schools as well. I think there are two problems. One is the obvious one that the world has changed in terms of technology, just the way we can learn now, the use of technology, if it's sufficiently creative. Um, even during lockdown, I've seen things happen that have amazed me um, by judicious use of technology. And we, we just have to get real about this. You know, why, oh, why are universities and schools building more immense, prestigious buildings left, right and centre um, to house this, that and the other, when in fact we know that some forms of learning can take place without any physical space existing whatsoever, like that, I mean, a single central physical space. So the way technology is changing should be changing learning to a far greater extent than it is. That's the first thing. But the second and actually much more important thing for me is this. And nothing I'm going to say now is new. I mean, this has been said a hundred times before by other people and probably far better than I'm about to say it. But for about 200 years, although in pockets it's been happening for a long time before that, you have a lockstep system whereby a certain age you're supposed to have a certain body of knowledge, a canon of knowledge, or I don't know, an epistemy of knowledge, whatever it might be. Who decides what that canon or, or epistemy is? And the answer is usually the people who did very well the generation before coming up through exactly the same system. And so it self-perpetuates. And of course, there'll be modifications as the years go by. I mean, views of history change, whatever it might be. But the idea of teaching history as a discrete subject and then choosing a particular time period for whatever reason might be, that doesn't change. The idea of examining these discrete subjects essentially with the same methodologies, that hasn't changed. And the idea that you're a success or a failure, depending on how much you remember over a short period at the end of a two-year course, whatever it might be, you know, that hasn't really changed, despite what people might say. And for me, the great tragedy is the number of people we are losing, especially in terms of creative minds, entrepreneurial minds, minds that are operating brilliantly in spheres that the examination system just doesn't test at all. So I got lucky, and if I can be very specific about myself, Lucas, I, I actually sometimes forget how lucky I was. You know, I've just owned up to coming 23rd in a class of 32 until I was about 16. Then in the English system, you're allowed to specialize. So I specialized in the arts and humanity. You know, I did music, Latin, English, ancient history, general studies. And lo and behold, suddenly I'm an A-grade student. I go to Oxford and, and I get a, um, a scholarship to Oxford and I leave with a first class degree. Interestingly, if I were going through school now, I wouldn't get within a sniff of Oxford because now, guess what? You you effectively need A stars in all your subjects, including the sciences, even if you want to go and read a, an arts or humanities subject. So goodness me, was I lucky. I just happened to be born at the right time. And I, I guess I played the system. That cannot be right. You know, since leaving university, I have met some of the most remarkable human beings, as we all have, who didn't go to university. Um, probably did far better for not doing so. And I'll just tag something else onto that, if I may. If you look at the application rates to American universities, for example, you see they've been going down year on year. Fewer people seemingly want to go to university. And I understand why. And just to be clear, I'm not suggesting it's right that everybody avoids going to university. There are some wonderful universities and some wonderful courses out there. But I get it. I understand it. There's too much money invested in the status quo too many people are too complacent about where we are now. And it's a battle. It's going to be a huge fight. And a tiny little place like Green School New Zealand just has to earn its place in the story here. But it's wrong. It has to change. Um, this idea of a canon of knowledge that is sacred, that you have to have by the age of 18, otherwise you're a failure, um, it's outmoded. And we are losing so many wonderful people because the system won't let them in. Um, I've used the analogy before. If you went into a shoe shop 
and you discovered that every shoe was a size five, you'd think, what a rubbish shoe shop. But actually, in many education systems, unless you are a size five when you leave, um, you're a failure. We're just looking for size fives uh, in the way people think, um, in the way people approach the work. It's got to stop. It's wrong. Yeah, and of course, the, the idea of standardized testing based on knowledge is, is outmoded and maybe slowly being overcome. Um, but I'm wondering how you're thinking about assessment in the Green School context. Yeah, I'm a big fan at the moment of, um, if, if you take an organization like the Mastery Transcript Consortium. So for me now, assessment of the human being, so far as we can do that. Um, let, let me go back to the famous Socrates comment, that, that Socratic comment, the unexamined life is not worth living. I would love for our young people to examine their lives from as early an age as possible and to continually examine their lives. And I would love the result of that examination of one's own life to be out there on a transcript. And of course, that would involve you know, what we would traditionally call academic subjects and how you perform in them. Absolutely, it would. And, and so it should. I mean, you, you know, if you don't want a doctor who doesn't have a decent knowledge of you know, biology or whatever it might be, you, you'd be really um, up the creek without a paddle. But all those other soft skills, um, all those other qualities that are missed by the examination system should be on a transcript when you leave school. And as I said, I direct people to something like the Mastery Transcript Consortium. And of course, the Green School Diploma itself, um, that doesn't have quite the same reach as the, the MTC I've been describing, which is why I'm advising people to have a look at it. Let's take a holistic view. Let's take a cross and interdisciplinary view. And let's also understand the emotional, the creative intelligence of the, of the people we're dealing with. Um, and then as a final point, you know, do I believe in examinations? Um, I think there are times when examinations have a place. And again, you know, the example of somebody going to, to, to be a doctor, um, you've got to make darn sure you know what you're doing and you need to make sure this person is capable of recognizing, you know, the thigh bone from the knee bone, et cetera. Um, but honestly, I, I think 90% of the examinations our young people are taking now, those things that are making them sick and nervous and jaded and hate school in many instances, um, they really have to stop. Yeah, probably to a large extent because they examine things that are just not skills relevant to, uh, to any work performance. So certainly I would want a doctor to know how to treat and diagnose. I don't need a doctor who knows how to fill in multiple choice tests under very particular stressful conditions. Um, so there might also be a lot about the format of examinations and not just the content. I think... Um... Let me give you a, a specific example of how I think about this and why I think concepts are so important now. When I was at school, if I were taking a history test, um, I would get marks um, for saying um, King Henry VII won the Battle of Bosworth. That's one mark. Um, it was in 1485. I get two marks. And he defeated Richard III. I would get three marks. And if I also threw in it was effectively the end of the, uh, the Wars of the Roses, I might get another mark. So that's four marks. What I was never taught about were concepts of loyalty um, and power, um, patriarchy, and so on. Things that could have been transferred, of course, across cultures, across ideas that could be applied right now, whether it's to conflict in, in, in the Middle East, wherever it might be. That's what I lacked. There was no conceptual understanding of what I was learning. And even now, I could probably give you all the kings and queens of England, certainly from 1066, to the present day, I could, you know, I think I'll probably still do that in about 100 seconds if I put my mind to it. Please don't test me on that, Lucas, but I think I could. Um, but as I've said elsewhere, it's not even a good pub trick. 
it's not that it's bad to know that. If, if that's what interests you, of course, it's absolutely fine. It, it, it's wonderful. But it is not necessary for every child to know that. They don't anymore, by the way. This is an exaggerated example, but true of my day. Um, and as you said, the world has changed so much. It's not just that we want things that are applicable to the real world. I mean, the life of the mind is a wonderful life, and I'm not denying scholarship or the place of scholarship. If you want to spend the rest of your life studying Chinese calligraphy, that is wonderful, and I, I would support you 100%. But we do not have to fill up milk bottles exactly the same way to exactly the same height all the time. And I feel still that in many, many systems, um, and New Zealand is proudly different, in many, many systems, that's still what we're doing. The system gets you in the end. Yeah, I think one, one thing that I find very interesting about Green School, uh, Bali, more, more than you at the moment, was that they managed to develop their own diploma that's clearly recognized by some leading universities. And that it's really fundamentally different from what we see in most other high school systems. Can you share a bit about how that came about and how you're thinking about maybe moving into that direction of having the Green School Diploma recognized as its own qualification? Yeah. Um, so I think, first of all, we need to once again to praise Bali and, you know, pat on the back, congratulations, because it, it was a huge effort and it took time. It didn't happen overnight. There is a problem, um, not with Green School Bali, but with the receiving universities, that it's much easier to get into an American university via a high school diploma um, than it is to other universities around the world. I'm going to generalize now. So, you know, people listening to this might cry just a minute. I know many exceptions and there are exceptions and I know some as well. But generally, a school diploma is better suited to entrance to an American university, not least because the number of hours are very important in that system. You know, how many hours of physics have you done? How many hours of this, that and the other? Sorry, the Bali... Um, Green School Diploma, has had tremendous success, especially in America, because they value that kind of thing. Um, and also, it seems that the holistic approach of Bali has opened the eyes, I think, of some universities, especially in America. When I was there at Bali, they actually had an American university fair. In fact, it wasn't just America. There were one or two other universities there as well, but primarily American universities who'd come to the campus and, and were pitching for, um, for Bali students. And it was wonderful. It was uplifting. There is a however to this, which is that other countries, so the United Kingdom, for example, um, is still resistant. Uh, and that's the fault of UK universities. That's not the fault of the, of the Green School Diploma. And this is one of the things that has to change. Even Australia, New Zealand, although we have had success in New Zealand from Bali, um, there was resistance. So one of the things I want to do with, with the New Zealand Diploma is, is obviously join with Bali because two are stronger than one and say, right, look, we have more graduates. You've seen what Bali can do. Will you please just look at what we're producing here? And then maybe, I'm going to be slightly careful here, Lucas, because again, we're very young, but I'm also in discussion with other similar-minded organizations to see if we can't join together as well. And some of these organizations are very large, very large indeed. And one or two of them have also had enough of the system. And we're looking to see if we can't join forces and say, look, that these unique diplomas from nature-based schools or progressive thinking schools tell you so much more, so much more about a young learner than testing them over a two-hour period after they've done a two-year course. So I'm hoping for strength in numbers. I'm hoping it's a question of organization. Um, there is an army on the march. There really is. And I think, I mean, goodness me, one doesn't want to take advantage of such a terrible situation as COVID-19. But I think there has been mass recalibration And I'd be really disappointed when we came out of this if there weren't more people saying, actually, now I've got the courage to speak out. This, this won't do. So strength in numbers. 
Um, using the expertise from Bali and, as I said earlier on, making sure that it's contextualized for New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I was wondering is kind of what you've learned from the process of developing this more, more experiential and interdisciplinary curriculum. Because the idea of making learning experiential and the idea of breaking down subject barriers, those really aren't new ideas, but they're rarely implemented as fully as you're implementing them now. So what would you say have you learned so far? Yeah, um, if this program went on for the entire day, I, I still wouldn't have finished describing what I have learned since since I came. <laughs> I think, let, let's take, um, I mean, you and I are both familiar with UWC, um, an incredible idea. And for five years, you know, I was running um, United World College of Southeast Asia with five and a half thousand students. Um, those remarkable schools took giant strides Now, as I come to Green School New Zealand, there, there are some things we really have to catch up with with UWC. You know, we're going to be behind in a lot of things. UWC will be ahead of us in some areas. But where we have one huge advantage over just about any other school I know is the fact that we are so nature-based. And my early observations are it is the nature-based quality of certainly the Green School New Zealand education that seems to be making all the difference. Um, I gave you that example before of the, the Maori lesson. That's a real example. So I walked to the top of the small hill that's in, in the middle of our campus, and I looked down at the rushing river that's at the bottom of the, of the hill, and the students could go down there to swim and whatever. And there really was a language lesson taking place. And the, the learners really had been asked to find things, or these were young learners, to find things around the campus and describe them to one another and so forth. What you actually saw was a kind of Rousseau-esque vision, you know, young people running wild around the fields and the river. And you might have arrived thinking, goodness me, this is anarchy. But when they all came together again at the end, you realized it wasn't anarchy at all. And it's the fact that it's nature-based that to me at the moment suggests that melding the disciplines into one another in that environment is just so productive. And it's real. That's the thing, you know, all five senses are at work. You know, I have to smile. Some of these conversations about remote learning, yes, it, it does suit certain kinds of learning, as I said earlier, um, better than um, even, even classroom teaching. But when all's said and done, you're only using two senses when you're sat at a computer of the five traditional senses. And I see all five of those senses constantly being used in the nature-based environment. And that's been the big revelation. What does that specifically enable? I think it's the connection, first of all. You know, we talked about the connectivity of all things. Um, you know, why am I learning Maori? Why I'm never going to be able to use this, etc. And then suddenly when you're by the river and you're naming the birds, you're naming the plants, you're looking for things, you're hearing the spiritual stories of the Maori in Maori, um, it all becomes much more real and meaningful. And it's very difficult to replicate that in a rectangle. And I was taught primarily in rectangle. I mean, some beautiful rectangles, I have to say. I mean, some of the most beautiful rooms in the world. Um, But mainly, mainly, I was taught in rectangles and the difference between being sat by that river and, and being in the rectangle. And that applies to, to so many subjects. Um, I cannot stress enough how much the experiential side is changing people's lives, even after a few weeks. You know, I said we're too young quite frequently, I think, in this conversation. I said, oh, come back, you know, come back later when I've got some examples. We're too young. But I can say categorically that I've seen people change already, the adults as well because this is a nature-based um, experience. Ultimately, uh, what you're building is beautiful, but very far away from the, from the reality of many teachers and students working in rectangles in cities. Yep, yep. Um, so I'm wondering if there is already something that, that you would say you would definitely take along if you were now forced back to, 
teach or lead a school in London, say? Yeah, um, that's, that, that's quite a compelling question. And again, one, one thing I'll keep saying throughout this, Lucas, is that we don't think we have all the answers. We really don't. There are brilliant schools around the world and in the cities, in the countryside, whatever. Green school is, is sure. part of a movement. So, you know, I must keep saying that. We preach at nobody. I, I have strong views, as you probably gathered, about certain things. But they're my views. I'm, I'm not a preacher. Um, I'd, I'd rather persuade people if I can. Um, I think the great experiment for me, and uh, it may be being conducted around the world by people I don't know of, is to see the extent to which a genuinely holistic, experiential, action-orientated curriculum can be applied in a school in a city. And I would throw into that the importance, as I said, of the, of the nature-based elements and what might that look like. If I go back to my previous school, uh, United World College of Southeast Asia, um, two titanic campuses, but there were gardens, there was growth, sustainability was increasingly high on the agenda. I mean, I, mean, I will say, perhaps slightly controversially in, in our bubble world that we live in, um, I think UWC is at the moment streaks ahead of Green School in terms of socioeconomic diversity. And Green School will need to, I mean, Green School New Zealand's hardly had a start yet, but you know, we're behind and we, we, we will need to do much better as the years go by. But if I may say, I think overall UWC was lacking a little when it came to sustainability, you know, that mission statement of peace and a sustainable future. I remember at the UWC mm -hmm. conference in Trieste, so many wonderful comments about what the UWC movement was doing, but I think we'd all agree that on the board, and I say this as a UWC head, so, you know, I, I didn't take any pride in seeing this, there was a feeling that UWC was lagging behind in terms of sustainability. What did that really mean? How did it manifest itself in the movement? Well, I'd love to see the green school approach used in, in city schools, in urban schools, etc. I think there are aspects of the curriculum that are transferable, conceptual aspects. That would be fascinating. It would be an experiment that can do no harm whatsoever. Um, and I, I, I would take that back right now. Yeah, it would be very interesting to, to see. And certainly some of the ideas around connectivity to, to the real world, to broader systems, uh, That would definitely ought to be possible in an in urban context. Yeah, I, I, this the trouble is it's the getting and the spending and the busyness and the linear quality of that urban life that mitigates against success, isn't it? And um, it's, it will be finding a way of breaking that down as best one can. And it may well be, as was the case with me, you know, how does one in a, in a poor in a, in a city school truly, you know, connect with nature? Should you connect with nature? Is, the, is that city you're in as natural as the forest people like me keep talking about, you know, here in beautiful Taranaki, New Zealand? And I think there are different ways into this. Um, literature is a way in. I mean, that's, you know, I, as I said, I grew up in Liverpool. I grew near the sea. I mean, it was actually a pretty beautiful place where I grew up when I, when I look back on it. Um, but essentially, I think, you know, my understanding of nature came from reading literature. And, and that's fine. That's fine. If you can find a way into the connectivity, Ian e. Forster said this, only connect. If you can find a way in, wonderful. I guess the question is, how does one apply that in that um, urban environment? Um, I don't have any easy answers for that. You know, growing vegetables on the sides of skyscrapers is good, uh, but there's more to it than that. You already referred to uh, your journey a couple of times and how much you learned <laughs> along the way. Um, if, you, if you're looking back Uh, if you got a chance to speak to yourself when you started out in education, in teaching, what advice would you give to young, your younger self? I think the advice I would give myself would be very wary of the canon. And what I mean by that is that canonical body of knowledge that I as a teacher um, had to deliver. 
not only be wary of the canon, and, and in my case, you know, if I was teaching um, English, for example, you would have prescribed set texts and, and, and so on. And I know the IB loosened this and, you know, they, they did give you more flexibility. So, what, you know, well done, the IB. That was a good move. Um, but it wasn't just the canon itself. It was approaches to that canonical body of knowledge. Um, I wish I'd read more, although there was very little research done on this, about multiple intelligences. I wish I had a much better understanding of that. I wish I had a much better understanding of how people learn differently. And I wish, I wish I had a better understanding of what I should be valuing. Because even as a young teacher, although I cared very much, um, at least I certainly hope I did, my, my memory is telling me I did. Um, you probably better ask the students for their view on this, but I think I cared for everybody. But actually... If people did well in my subject, if people were naturally gifted in my area, I, I did gravitate towards them. I did spend more time with them. Um, and I deeply regret that now as well. I, I wish it had been otherwise. But it all speaks to that funnel down which it's a little bit like the Pink Floyd video. You know, I know it's very cliched and um, I'm of an age. I was at school when it came out, the um, Another Brick in the Wall song where the students are put through the mincing machine in the, in the um, cartoon and they all come out as mints. <laughs> um, and look, I, I taught at a brilliant set of schools. So these are my failings, but they're also the failings of the system. I was the product of a system. And for a while, I did very well in that system by actually behaving myself. Well, now you're doing well in the broader system by behaving differently. Um, what, what was it that enabled you to, to break free a little bit more from, from the canon and from the way things are done? Oh, it's a, there's a number of things. You know, I've, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, there'll be people back in England, if anyone listens to this, they'll say, what, that's him? You know, he didn't think that. And they're absolutely right. I've, I have been on the, you know, the cliche journey. Um, so I'm going to be slightly circumspect with this answer because I, I have only learned from these wonderful experiences I've had and nothing I'm about to say is intended to be negative, not a negative comment about a school or about people. They're just points in time. Um, which have informed me and changed me. One of the schools I worked at had a clientele that was predominantly um, quite wealthy, and a few of them um, were, were wonderfully charismatic, eccentric characters, etc. But a few were rather entitled and arrogant as well. And I saw the danger, um, certainly in England, of an entitled upper class getting together, and, and I saw the damage that that could cause. Um, in, in pockets and on a very small scale. And I, I won't go into detail. Suffice to say, I saw enough to understand that there were, there were forces at work that I didn't much like. Then I was head of a school for 10 years, which I'll happily name, a wonderful school called Bromsgrove, um, for which I have enormous affection. A different kind of clientele, a lot of self-made people at Bromsgrove. And that brought another dynamic to bear because that's what got me thinking, well, just a minute, here are these parents, many of whom themselves didn't go to particularly well-known or perhaps even particularly good schools, I, I don't know, sending their children to Bromsgrove. They, many of them were thinking outside of the box. They came up to another route compared to that previous school I mentioned. And you know, how did they do that? And that's where I became alive. And I met and knew many of these parents, alive to people who'd actually made a success. I'll put that word in inverted commas, um, but made a success of their lives, not necessarily through the traditional academic route. So these are some of the people who had broken out of the system. By the time I got to UWC, I was very confused because, of course, you have this wonderful platonic mission statement. And yet in a place like Singapore, just by virtue of the fact international parents are in Singapore, they've done extremely well, almost certainly in business, commerce, banking, whatever it might be. And I was finding it hard to square the circle. I was struggling, but I think UWC more than anywhere moved me further down the road because we were already doing some work by the time I left. 
on looking at how we might modify the IB. Let's not forget, at the beginning, IB and UWC were symbiotic. I'd asked Harvard University, well, sorry, my team and I, it sounded a bit arrogant, didn't it? My team and I had asked Harvard University if they could work with the UWC movement to do a longitudinal study of our mission statement, see if we can actually flesh that out. You know, do we really, as a movement, deliver on this? And that journey moved me further and further away from the linear examination system. The most important thing about the United World Colleges is that mission statement. It, it's not your IB scores. And then I fell into Green School New Zealand because I suddenly realized I'd actually walked further down that road than I thought. I said at the beginning, because I intended to go back to the UK after Singapore and take things down a notch. And I didn't realize how far along the road I'd walked until the New Zealand opportunity presented itself. I thought, goodness me, look, here I am. All, all these things have, have kept nudging me on as I've been trying to make sense of an increasingly liberal environment. Um, and yeah, now I'm in a field in Taranaki with 50 young people hoping to make a wonderful success of it. Now, at the end of this journey, you got to New Zealand to this exciting new start and then ended up being locked down very quickly in your new, rather small flat, rather than the large, expansive campus. I was wondering what, what kind of reflections that triggered and how it might inform your path going forward. Yeah, so there's more than an irony about this. Um, you're quite right. You know, I, I came to, in the Abrahamic tradition, we'd say the Garden of Eden, wouldn't we? Um, and I ended up actually spending as much time locked in a rectangle. Um, but my rectangle has the most beautiful, inspirational views. And I'm here without my wife. She, uh, she managed to get herself locked down in the UK. I'm locked down in New Zealand. And who knows, it could be, it could be a year before we actually manage to see each other again. So one has to be very stoical about these things. Um, but the reflection was important. And my conclusion is that the learning compass at Green School New Zealand is spot on because at the top of our compass, we have four cardinal points on our what we call a learning compass. You know, So we don't have north, south, east, west. We have R-E-A-L around the compass. And at the top, the true north is R, and R stands for relationships. And I've had cause to reflect on relationships with self, relationships with community, relationships with, with planet, with, with Earth as well. Um, And I've been so lucky, as I said, no one needs shed any tears for me, but I know that there are people who are genuinely isolated, genuinely suffering, especially through this COVID period. And it, it comes back to that point at the beginning about connectivity. And if Green School is about anything, it's about connectivity and understanding the implications of connectivity. And I don't want to go prosaic and back into the world of systems thinking. It's, it's actually something beyond that as human beings. You know, we have evolved to be social animals. And um, I guess without going too deep into the philosophical realms, you know, I, I do believe in the evolutionary intelligence theory that first we had to master our environment. And then once we felt we'd mastered that, we began to master one another. And in order to do that, our social skills developed, our communication skills developed and so on and so forth. But the, the planet, and I have been thinking about this a lot over the last few weeks, you know, the planet has become neither friend nor foe to us. It is simply something we use to our advantage in the intraspecies competition. And that's something I would love for us to get away from. Back to that point of connectivity, back to that point of relationships. You know, a fatalist would say, we have evolved to this position. There's actually nothing we can do about it. This is evolution. And I would respond, I, I kind of agree with you up to a point, but evolution has now given us brains that are big enough to stop and change direction. Evolution's done that for us too. Um, so as I slowly come out of my flat, because our lockdown is finishing effectively this week, we're on something called level two, which means we can, we can all go to shopping malls again, hurrah. Um, 
as we come out of lockdown more than ever, um, I'm passionate about delivering on that. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. This was very interesting to me. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? Anything you want to add? Um, I, no, I don't think so, Lucas. That was very full and um, great questions. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. If you enjoy it, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address in the show notes. Finally, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast, that would be much appreciated. Next time, I'm speaking to Robin Goldberg, who is the Chief Experience Officer at Minerva Schools. Minerva have rethought what college education should be all about and built a new program that's entirely based online and that truly focuses on teaching essential skills, critical thinking, creative thinking, and so on. I think many of their approaches can hold lessons for all of us who care about education that makes a difference. And they were one of very few institutions that proved resilient to the COVID crisis. I found the conversation with Robin very insightful and inspiring, so I hope you will tune in. Stay tuned and stay safe. Mm -hmm.